If you have your Bible with you, open to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue studying through the book of 1 Timothy. We've come as far as chapter 3 so far. All right, 1 Timothy. Hey, did you know that the Bible lists the qualifications for a pastor? The job description, it's it's declared to us in the Bible by the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he says, hey, here in chapter 3, we're going to see the description for a pastor. Oh, he refers to them as bishops, but the pastor, the bishop, and the elder are all kind of interchangeable terms weaved throughout the scripture. And we're going to see this morning as we see, as we see what Paul says, hey, this is what is required in a man to be a leader over a ministry. Next week, we're going to look and see what's required of a deacon. This is somebody who serves underneath of the leaders that's serving in the, in the ministry. And I find it interesting because I think as Christians, you might have a tendency to think, well, that's not me. I'm, not, I'm never going to be a pastor, don't really want to be a deacon, so don't really want to serve, so I guess I can just go to sleep for the rest of the study. No, no, that's not, that's not true. Don't do that. Besides, I have things I'm going to throw at you if you do. <laughs> and if the person next to you falls asleep, just give them a good arm. Just point to me and give them a good one. No. no go ahead if you want. But <laughs> what, what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul says, listen, there's certain characteristics There are certain godly characteristics that men should have when they're leading the ministry, when they're leading a church. And whether you aspire to be a pastor someday or whether you feel a calling in ministry, it's important for you to know this so you'd know that if your pastor is living up to this or not. Don't you want to know what what requirements the pastor has? I mean, if, if I was just living and doing however I wanted, I would hope if I was doing something contrary to God's word that somebody in my congregation would say, hey, you know, I, I see that this is going on and I read this in the Bible. Can you explain to me how it kind of works together? And if I won't correct myself and line up with what the scripture says, do you know what you should do? Go find a new church. Go find somebody who is lining up. Doesn't mean that pastors are perfect. Doesn't mean they won't excel in some of these, and maybe there's some other areas that can be a little harder. But what we need to take away from this morning is that the Bible is clear on the characteristics that are required for men to serve in ministry. If you remember correctly, Paul just got, to, got, just got done telling women that they shouldn't be leading the church. He told, them, he told them a couple of things. He said, he, well, let me back up a little bit. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is talking, about, talking to Timothy, and he's telling him, hey, this is how I want the church to work. This is how I want the church to operate. And he says the most important thing the church can do is what? Pray. Pray. Prayer is the most essential thing that the church can do. And he says, he says I want you to pray for all men. I want you to pray for kings and those in authority. And I want you to pray that you'll, have a, that you'll lead a quiet and a peaceable life. It'll be peaceful. And then he says, I want you to have men leading the prayers. I want men praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands. I want men to be leading this. And he tells women, I think you should dress modestly. Don't be distracting in church, dress modestly. And he's very, very clear when he tells women, and we did a study on this last week, he tells women that they shouldn't be teaching men. Basically, he's saying they shouldn't be an authority over men in the church. After he says that, after he reads that, or after you were to read that in a letter, you could think, well, as a man, that makes me something special, doesn't it? Well, Paul's got something to say to you, too. He says, if you want to be an authority over a church, if you want to lead a church, here's what I expect from you. Because just being a man doesn't qualify you to be a leader in a church. Remember that. Just because someone is a male, it's not like, it's not like oh, I'm a man, so I can be a leader over the church. No, that's not the case. Paul says, if you want to be a leader over the church, there's certain things that you have to, you have to uh, reach or certain, certain things that you have to obtain. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
The Apostle Paul starts out, he says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Paul's telling men, it's a good thing to desire to be a bishop, to be a leader of a church. It's a good thing. Now, when you see the word bishop, what do you think of? What do you think, well, what's a bishop? Now, I think of a guy with a big hat, fancy, fancy robe, you know. Uh, I think of somebody like powerful authority. That, that's, right, that's right away goes up, in, the, up in, in my mind. But that's not really what the word here means, okay? What the word here means, the Greek word is episkopos, and it refers to the act of watching over something or somebody. But it's, it breaks down into two Greek words, epi, which is over, and scopes, which is watcher. So it's a watcher over. It's somebody that's watching over things, but the way that it's portrayed there in the original language indicates they're present with what they're watching. Okay, so it's somebody who's watching over, somebody who's leading, somebody who's caring, somebody who's over top of a church here. And Paul is specifically writing to the church, remember. He's writing to how I want the church, how I want the church to operate. So a bishop is nothing else or nothing more than somebody in authority uh, over or oversight in a church. Perhaps today we would call them pastors or elders. Those two words are also listed throughout the New Testament, different Greek words, but they're, they're used interchangeably. Um, elder is presbyteros and pastor is poem, which means shepherd. So when we see shepherd, we see bishop, we see elders, we should think all of the same kind of person, the, 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 all, of the, all of the same thing, people that are watching over. And, and most scholars believe that, that, that we can interchange the words. You say, Rob, is that really important? Well, it is, because if you study the scripture, you want to know that when I see the word pastor, when I see the word elder, when I see the word bishop, it's referring to, the, to a leader in the church. Now, I want you to just take a note in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we see many elders or overseers in one church in one city. And I say that because nowhere in Scripture do we find, nowhere in Scripture do we find the fact that there is a bishop set up over a geographical area. Some churches have modeled their, their, their administration like that. But instead what we find is we see many bishops or many elders or many pastors overseeing different parts of, of, of multiple churches or even a single church in that particular one area. Um, maybe you've heard of the Episcopal Church. That's, they, they, they would disagree with everything I just told you. They believe that a bishop is set up and it's supposed to be oversee a ge geographical area and he's the head guy in that area. Okay? I don't think we find that in Scripture. What we find is these bishops, these elders, these men that have been walking with the Lord and Paul's going to tell Timothy they have to be seasoned in the faith. You know, he's going to warn them in, in a little bit. They're not new at this. They can't be novices. They're not brand new Christians. They're men who have been walking for a while. So what we have is we have this... Uh, Paul's telling them, hey, listen, if, 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 if a guy desires to be a leader in the church, that's good. That's really good. And he says something about the position. of He says he desires a good work. So Paul says two things about the work of a leader or of a church or of a pastor. He says it's both good. It's both good. It is noble. It's honorable. But he also says it's work. It's work. The pastor's job should never be just to simply get up here and teach on Sunday without any preparation, spend my hour and hour that I'm here. And that if, that, if you think that's my whole week, that's not the way it goes. The pastor's job should be work. It should be, it, as a matter of fact, it's a lot of times it's harder work than what's in the world. You don't get to turn your phone off. You never know when people are going to pass away or you don't, there's always people are looking to talk to you at the, at the most uh, inconvenient times sometimes and you have to give yourself to them and you have to be available to them. Preparing a Bible study, do you know how long it takes? Do you know it takes me about 10 to 12 hours for every message I prepare? 
on average, some longer, some a little bit less. Well, that's two a week that I do. Well, that's like a part-time job. Well, yeah, it is. It takes a lot of time to put, to, get, to put it together right. It should be work. Paul says it's good, but it's also work. Charles Spurgeon said this about a lazy, lazy pastor. He said, what is the use of a lazy minister? He is not good either to the world, to the church, or to himself. He is a dishonor to the noblest profession that can be bestowed upon the sons of men. As a pastor, I get the, I get the blessing to share God's word with you guys. It's a blessing. Do you know that I'm blessed that you guys come and get to he- and hear me teach the word? I never thought you'd, any of you would be here. I wonder why you're here sometimes. But the Lord put it on my heart to come up to Cumberland and teach the Bible, and that's what I do. And he brings you guys here. But as I do that, I get to watch you guys change. I get to watch you grow in faith. I get to watch you grow, walk through difficult seasons of life, watch the Lord be faithful in your life like I've seen him be faithful in mine. It's an incredible blessing, but I gotta tell you, it's hard work. I work harder now than I did before. I work harder now than I did as a police officer. I never knew that as a pastor I had to negotiate contracts. I had to put up drywall. I had to finish drywall. I never knew I had to, be, had to have carpentry skills. I never knew I had to be a plumber. I never knew I had all these things that get done. I never knew that that's what the pastor is responsible for doing or finding somebody to do it because the church never has enough money to pay somebody. So we have to find it, get it all done. It's the pastor's responsibility. That work is good and it's noble, it's a, but it's also work. And look at what he says. He says in verse two, a bishop or a pastor or elder or, he says a bishop must be blameless. Must be, must be, underline must be. These are must-be's. These aren't, these aren't suggestions. These are must-be's. This is what needs to happen. They must be. What does it mean to be blameless? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to be perfect. If it did, we'd all be disqualified, every pastor out there, right? What it means is it means irreproachable. It means nothing can take hold of you. And let me see if I can put it to you in a way that's easy to understand. There's nothing in a pastor's life that other people or Satan can grab hold of and attack the church with it. There's nothing that's in my life that's, 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 that can be used against me to say, hey, you're not living this way or you're not doing that way. It's living a life that's, that's pleasing to God. It's living a life that's holy, living a life to the best of your ability that you're not going, you're not going to see me walking down the street. You know, you're not going to see me walking down the street one day uh, using foul language or hear me using foul language. <laughs> if I do, it's an accident. I don't do that anymore. That's what it means to be blameless. I used to do that. I used to live that kind of life, but I don't do that anymore. John Corson put it this way. He said, if blameless meant flawless, we'd all be disqualified from ministry at step one. Fortunately, the idea of blameless implies a heart that says, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but there's nothing in my life that I'm clinging to or holding on to, which I know is contrary to you. It's a man who wants his life to line up with what the Bible says. Not perfection, because we all fall short, but it's a man who's not, who's, who's not holding on to something so tight that it can be used against him in the church or bring down the church. He's willing to let those things go, blameless. But he also says that the bishop must be the husband of one wife, the husband of one wife. I want you to notice a couple of things here, the husband of one wife. This clearly does not forbid a pastor or a bishop from being married. But I also don't think it requires that they be married. Jesus himself was never married. Paul was likely married at one point, but then we don't know what happened to his wife. He had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin, whether either she passed away or some people believe when, she convert, when he converted to Christ, she left him. 
That's a possibility too. We don't know. We don't know the answer here. But the idea of the husband of one wife, it means a one-woman man. It means the man is, is, is focusing on his wife as his mate. He's not looking elsewhere. He's not, he's not running around on her. He's focused on one. Popular Greek culture, which was very influential during that time, it said this. It said a man should have three women. This is what was the common belief. A man should have three women, a mistress for conversation, a concubine for pleasure, and a wife to bear his children. Paul says, no way. Paul says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, that's not a leader in the church, not somebody like that. Now, here's the question that we always wanna ask here. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ say, hey, if you've been divorced as a man, because this area of scripture says the husband of one wife, if you then get remarried, you are then disqualified from ministry. The husband of one wife. If, you get, if you've had two wives, then are you, are, are you disqualified from being an elder? You say, well, that's a good question, Rob. How are you gonna, where, what, are you gonna, what are you gonna tell us? Listen, I wanna say this to you about it. Some of us, some of our brothers and sisters would say, yes, absolutely. If you've been married twice, you are absolutely disqualified from being an elder. But I think, in my opinion, I think it depends on two things. I think it depends on what happened in the divorce. Was it your fault? Were you at the pulpit when it happened? Were you, were, or is this something that happened when you were 18 or 19 or 20 years old and you got married and, and made a mistake and then, you, and then when, when did you get saved in all this? Maybe, maybe you got married young and then got, saved, got divorced, then got saved. I, I, I don't think that would disqualify somebody from being, behind a, being a leader in a church. But if someone's saved, if someone's a pastor, and then they get divorced, and the divorce is their fault, absolutely that would disqualify you. Do you understand? I think God is a very gracious God. And I think that we don't want to overstep and we don't want to come to this area of Scripture and say, you know, that people think this means a lot of different things. The husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Well, obviously, he's referring to, or he could be referring to multiple wives. Polygamy, which was common back in that day as well. No, this is not the case. Paul's saying, listen, I want the leader of the church to be a man who understands that God created marriage to be between a man and a woman forever. But I think God is also gracious enough to say and look at every circumstance individually and see, hey, what happened to cause this in the life of that person? I don't believe that a man is completely disqualified from serving as an elder or a pastor just simply because he's divorced. That's my opinion. You're free to have a different opinion if that's your case, if that's your choice. But, I under, but we need to understand that this area of Scripture, when a, a, the husband of one wife, it refers to a man who holds his marriage as a sacred institution. It refers to a man who will stay with his wife through thick and thin, who's not inclined to put her away or to seek a divorce, not a man who's talking about divorce, who's thinking about divorce. It's a man who's committed to his wife and only his wife. He's not looking elsewhere for, uh, for physical pleasure. He's not looking elsewhere for emotional relationship. He is committed to his wife in that way. You see, that's, isn't it funny because that, the, the common culture in that day said every man should have three women. One's for emotional One's for physical and one's for utilitarian to raise the kids and take care of the house. No, no, that's not the case at all. Paul would say, no, no, that is one woman that you need to be married to, one person. Now, he also says temperate. It means sober. Temperate, the word temperate there means sober. Sometimes it was translated in the classical Greek writing as wineless. It means this, you are not under the influence of an addiction. Not under the influence of addiction. A pastor, a leader in the church shouldn't be addicted to anything. Shouldn't be under the influence of an addiction. Then it goes on to say sober-minded. 
The ability to think clearly with clarity, not constantly joking, but how to deal with serious things in a, in a serious way. If a pastor is on medication that's clouding his vision, not able to think clearly, do you think that he should probably step down for a short time? I think so. You have to be clear-minded. You have to be able to think clearly. You don't want to be under the influence or the addiction of anything. And I would say that applies to prescription drugs as well, if they're mind-altering or mind-affecting, that there might be a season for, to take a sabbatical or take a step down if you're, and deal with your health if that's the case. You have to have that clear mind. It says, of good behavior. You have to be of good behavior. That means to refers to being orderly or being dignified. It's the same word we saw previously last week in chapter 2, verse 9. It was translated as modest. The pastor has to be modest, has to be of good behavior, has to be orderly, has to be hospitable. What does that mean? It means you have to be willing to open up your home. You have to like people. You know, I've heard people say, well, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Well, there's no ministry if there's no people. The people are the ministry. The people are what, are what, what we, as a pastor, it's, it, you guys are why I'm here. If you weren't here, I wouldn't be here. I, it, it, honestly, if you guys, if everybody stopped coming to the church, I wouldn't have church on Sunday mornings here. There'd be no reason for me to. It's the people. It's, sometimes we get this mixed up. And I've said this before. The church is not about the organization. The church is not about the ministries or the things we're doing. The church is about the people. The purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's my job to equip you through the teaching of God's word so that you can fulfill the ministry that God's called you to in your life. It's about the people. Hospitable back then, they didn't have Holiday Inn Express. When you traveled, guess where you had to stay? Wherever you could find a place. What a way to spread the gospel if you're hospitable and there's travelers coming through town. Are you afraid to open up your home? Are you afraid to have anybody come in and see what's really like inside? You see, sometimes a lack of, lack of being hospitable is because you're hiding something that's going on at home. The pastor has to be willing to have people into his home, have to have people over, have to be able to let people move in and stay with them for a while if necessary. Has to have that, have that ability. It also says you have to be temperate. Temperate, what's temperate mean? It means sober. That's the one we just did, temperate. Sober-minded comes right after that. Sober-minded, the ability to think clearly. We just did that one. And the next one, of good behavior. Orderly, dignified, hospitable, and then able to teach. Able to teach. The leader of the church, here if Paul is requiring that they be able to teach. What do they have to teach? God's word. God's word. That's what they need to be able to teach. Not everybody's going to teach. Not every leader is going to be a pastor who teaches on Sunday morning. That's just not possible. It means they have to have the knowledge of God's word. They have to know how to apply it to their life. And they have to know how to teach other people to do the same thing, both in the public and the private setting. Do you know that you have the opportunity to teach God's word all the time whenever you're talking to somebody? When you share with a friend, when, you, when your friend comes to you with the problem and, you, and you, you, I don't know what to say, teach him God's word. Well, I don't know God's word. Well, that's your problem. That's what you need to be here learning. The best counsel in the world comes from the, from the word of God. That's where you get it from. When, when you ever had somebody say something, oh, it just sounds so profound. Hopefully it came from God's word. Biblical counseling far exceeds that which you will get in the world because biblical counseling will touch your soul. It'll, 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 it'll set you free from sin. It'll release you from the bondage of the things that hold on to you. You see, a leader in the church has to be able to teach God's word. And I don't mean just here like I'm doing on Sunday morning. I mean one-on-one. -on -one. I think it's more important one-on-one. -on -one. I think that's when, the, that's when the word really goes forth. 
When somebody has a problem and says to their friend, hey, I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm thinking this, what do you think? And they say, well, you know, I was reading the Bible today. And the Bible says this, that's amazing. Do you know that always ties back to your morning devotions? How many times have you read something in the morning and found it was the very thing you needed either for yourself or to give to somebody else that day? Isn't God great like that? It's amazing, happens all the time. Able to teach. Now it says not given to wine, not given to wine. And the word there given, what does it mean? It means not addicted to wine. The language means not addicted to wine. And so I know what the question is, Rob, can a, can a pastor drink? Can a, is it all right for a pastor to drink? According to the scriptures here, the Bible says that the, the pastor, the leader, should not be given to wine. And there's all kinds of arguments about this going on out there, all kinds of stuff happening. But here's what I want to share with you. There's a popular movement within churches today for pastors to be cool and pastors to be hip. So much so that they're having, uh, they're, some of them are using foul language from the pulpit. Some of them are going out and, and they're drinking beers and having Bible studies at bars. And there, there's, this, there's this kind of popular, cool, hip thing going on. I don't like it. I think it's more important that a pastor's holy than hip or cool, okay? Now, I can tell you, without a doubt, the Bible does not forbid anybody from having an alcoholic drink, okay? However... It doesn't forbid that. So if, if, if you have an alcoholic drink, you're not sinning. It does strongly forbid drunkenness. Okay, it does strongly forbid drunkenness. Now, I believe, and this is my personal opinion, I believe there's no place for a pastor to be drinking at all. I believe there's no place for a leader in the church. And it's my personal opinion. You can differ on this if you like. And I'm gonna give you a couple reasons why. Number one, because the Apostle Paul tells us that it might cause somebody to stumble. It might cause somebody to stumble. Now, I want to throw a few statistics. 85% of Americans drink alcohol, 7% are addicted to alcohol, and 1 million Americans entered inpatient rehab last year for alcohol. There's a good chance that you know somebody that has a problem with alcohol. As a matter of fact, we'll take a little survey. If you have somebody in your family or somebody that's a close friend, if your life has been negatively affected in any way, by somebody, including yourself, drinking alcohol or being an alcoholic. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Quite a few hands. I'd say the, over maybe 60% 60 of us. Now, here's the question I get. Well, what if I want to have a drink in my house? That's up to you. That's between you and the Lord. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with The Bible doesn't forbid that. But I want to share something with you. you know, during all the major revivals in history, one of the amazing things that I find is that the bars close down. The bars closed. Why did the bars close? Because people are being set free from alcohol. Because they're being, they're being removed from it. They're, 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 no longer need, they're, they're no longer going to that. They're going to the Lord. There's all kinds of arguments on this. Some people, you know, they argue about, you know, was it, was it really fermented back then? And I don't want to get into all that. I think it's, it's suffice to say that pastors need to be above reproach. They need to be blameless in this area. Several years ago, my wife asked me to go to the store and pick up a bottle of wine for cook to cook. So, uh, she was making something that needed, she needed wine to cook with. And I told her I wouldn't go. She goes, what do you mean you won't go? I said, you know what, honey? I said, if I walk out of that bottle of store with a bottle of wine wrapped in a paper bag and I walk across the parking lot because, you know, you got to go to the liquor store to get it. In Florida, you could get it at the, at the regular grocery store, but you got to go to the liquor store next to Martin's to get the bottle of wine. I said, and somebody from church sees me what are they going to think? What would you think? What if you saw me walking down the street with a bottle of wine in my hand? 
Would you be like, oh, cool, no big deal? Or, or, would, it, or would, would it possibly stumble somebody for a while? Some of you might say, it'd be no big deal. It's okay, maybe you're just having a glass of wine at home. Others might say, well, I, that, that, I have a problem with alcohol. That would really bother me if you were having a beer or something like that. That's why I choose not to do it. That's why I don't do it. So I, doesn't, I, I don't want to take the risk of stumbling somebody. I don't, want to make, I don't want to take that chance. Do you know that you could stumble somebody even in your own home if you were to bring a visitor in and they were to see what was there? That it could stumble somebody, not even intending to? In Proverbs, the third reason, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 4 says, it is not for kings, O Lamel, it is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they forget the law and pervert the justice of the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So he's saying it's not for leaders to get messed up with this stuff. It's, it's, listen, I have a hard enough time remembering the Bible and living a life pleasing to Christ. I'm not going to bring something into my life that's going to defile me. But I'm also not going to stand here and tell you that if that's what you do, that it's wrong. That's between you and the Lord. The reason that I quit drinking in my life was because several years ago the Lord told me to quit drinking. He told me that as he called me to the ministry that I was not to drink anymore. Now, again, just for clarity's sake, not given to wine, the word means not addicted to, addicted to. And I would encourage each of you, this is Paul speaking to leaders here in the church, people that aspire to lead in the church. If, if you enjoy a glass of wine, I would, and that, that's perfectly fine or whatever, I would encourage you to work that out between you and the Lord. If you and the Lord are okay with it, then I'm okay with it. But if you feel like the Lord's telling you to stop doing it, then stop doing it. Don't make a big deal of it, but just be obedient to what the Lord tells you to do. All right, moving on. Not violent. The King James says no striker. This is a man who is not given to violence publicly or privately. Not violent. Not greedy for money. King James again says not guilty of filthy lucre. I like that translation. Not guilty of filthy lucre. Not guilty of filthy lucre. This is a man, the man should not be driven by money. He should not be motivated by greed. He should not be, it shouldn't be the, you know, you shouldn't be, the pastor shouldn't think, wow, the church is growing, the offering is growing larger, now I can get paid more. That, that should, those are the kind of things that shouldn't cross the heart of a pastor. We shouldn't be driven by greed. And again, that's for elders or leaders in the church. And notice what it says next. Oh, by the way, it doesn't say you can't have money. It doesn't say you can't be wealthy. It doesn't say that financially you can't be, have money. But it says you can't be greedy for it. You can't be moved by it. It can't be the focus. It can't be the driving force for you. You know, it can't be the thing that just, that just pushes you along. Does that happen? Is there pastors that are greedy for money? Yeah, there are. Yeah, sure there are. Watch TV. Look at them. Why do you think they're doing that? Would you have a problem putting money in the offering box if you knew I had a $10 million home and I took a paycheck from the church? I would have a problem putting money in the offering box if that were the case. I really would. In case you're wondering, I don't take a salary from the church. I never have, and I, I don't know that I ever will. The Lord has provided financially for our family in, in other ways. I still am bivocational. I'm still working in the business world in, in, some, in some various forms. Um, I don't, I'm not required. I'm not for it. I don't have to. So I'm not, I, everything I do for the church, I get nothing for. Well, that's not true, is it? I don't get a paycheck for it. I don't get a paycheck for being here, but I'm getting paid for it. I'm getting far greater reward than, than, a, than a paycheck would be every, any day. It says gentle. Pastor, leader, bishop has to be gentle. King James says patient. 
It refers to being gracious and forbearing. Not somebody who wants their own will all the time. Not somebody who always has to have it done my way. Not somebody who says it's gonna be this way, my way or the highway. Somebody who's patient with people, right? Not somebody who gets frustrated when, when you, you sit and counsel somebody week after week and it's the same problem, the same problem, and they won't take any of your advice but yet they wanna come back and hear you for counseling again. And you're looking at them going, I told you how to fix this problem. And they just wanna talk about it. And they wanna go a different way around it and that's okay. The pastor's to be patient. He's supposed to sit there with, with them and encourage them, continue to, to, to exhort them and to raise them and point them back up to the Lord and continue giving the same counsel because the next time might be the very time the light bulb goes off. And when the light bulb goes off, that can be huge. If I'm not patient, if your pastor's not patient, there's not gonna be any time for that. Not quarrelsome, not quarrelsome. What does that mean? Not, doesn't like to fight? Well, certainly it means physically, but quarrelsome means arguing. The pastor shouldn't want to argue with everybody. I don't want to argue with you guys. If I, we talked about not giving to wine. If you have a different opinion, that's fine. I'm okay with that. If you see it differently, but I don't want to argue with you over it. I'll be glad to share with you more and, and we can talk more, but there's, but there's going to be no argument over it. I often get a kick out of going online and reading some of the forums where people ask questions and, and people argue and debate over what the answer is. And a lot of times you're reading other pastors' writings and uh, it becomes a big, nasty argument. And I read these lists and I'm thinking, how do you tell these are Christians? You know, they're putting each other down like, like the world would put each other down. You know, Paul said, don't be divisive. Don't, let's, let's not divide on things that don't really matter. I think we could all agree drunkenness is, is unbiblical. Let's not divide over the fact that somebody has a drink. That's not worth it. It's not covetousness. A pastor or church leader can't be covetous, can't be one who covets. It refers to more than just money here. It refers to stuff. It refers to stuff. He can't always be wanting what everybody else has, always trying to keep up, always trying to grab onto it. And I need more, I need more stuff. It's my stuff that look, I look to my stuff for happiness. I'm coveting this. I'm coveting that. I want this. I want that. One who rules his own house well one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? I like that. He says, go practice at home first. He says, take a look at the man that you're about to promote to a leader and see how his house is running. See how his wife, see what his wife thinks about him. If for a guy that's here that's married that says, I'd like to get into ministry, go ask your wife where you fit in this. She'll be honest with you. Rules his own house well. A man who's going to lead the church must first demonstrate his ability to lead at home. You know, the first Bible study I ever taught was at home. That's where I got my practice of teaching Bible studies, at home to my family, to my wife and my kids. They can't leave. They have to listen. As bad as it is, they have to listen. And they come back. I want to just share something for you. It doesn't mean that your children have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that the pastor's kids have to be perfect or anything like that. But what it means, and I believe this, that the father and the parents are handling the situations properly. Okay? When it says rule his own house, it means govern his own house. It means govern his own house. That he's governing his own house well. You say, Rob, well, what about, I know a pastor. I know a pastor, and he's got some bad kids. I mean, they're just bad. They're, they're, they're just doing all, they're not following God. They're, they're, just, they're just really, really, really bad. 
I think you have to ask if the child is being rebellious because of the parents' failure to do something or in spite of the parents. I think you have to find out what's the cause of this? What's the root cause? I know, I know pastors that have, asked their, that have thrown their teenage kids, I mean 18 and above, out of the house so they wouldn't be disqualified for ministry. I know other pastors who have gone before their board and said, listen, my kids are a mess. My kids are a mess. I'm going to have to step down. You see, it's an amazing thing that, that a child, the way that a child behaves certainly can disqualify a pastor in a ministry. Think about that. How does that happen? Well, a number of reasons, I'm sure, none of which we have time to discuss this morning. But what Paul's saying is to Timothy, take a look at a man's home. You want to see how a man's going to treat the people? See how he treats his wife. You want to see how a man's going to teach the people? See how he teaches his children. You want to see how a man's going to love the family of God? See how he loves his own family. You want to see how devoted he's going to be? See how devoted he is to his family. You see, you can learn a lot when you look at a man's home, and that's exactly what he's saying. It doesn't mean the children have to be perfect. It doesn't mean they won't make mistakes, but I believe he's governing his house well. Let me ask you this question. If you were governing a city, does it mean there would be no crime? No. It means you're handling it properly. It means you're doing what needs to be done. It means you're taking the appropriate steps. It means, it's, you know, it, it means that you're doing the right thing. You're not turning your back to it. You're not just pushing them aside. You're, you're addressing it. You're, you're, you're hitting it head on. You're taking care of the problem. You're governing your house well. And then he goes on. It says, the leader, the bishop, the pastor must not be a novice lest he be puffed up with pride. He fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The leader of the church should not be a new Christian. Should not, no rookies allowed is what he's saying. Go spend some time with the Lord. Walk through some trials. Go through the fire. See where you turn out. How many people have seen somebody come to Jesus and a year from now, you wonder what happened to them? They had the come to Jesus movement. They talked to you. They're on fire for Jesus and they're, they're going like crazy. Then you meet them a year later and what happened? I tried that, didn't work out for me. That's why we don't want you leading the church. We don't, want to, we don't want to elevate or promote somebody too quickly. I want to see how somebody does through a hard time. I want to see how somebody walks with the Lord through difficult seasons. I want to see what somebody does when, when it's, it's tempting and it's hard. I want to see how they handle temptation. Not a novice. The word novice means newly planted, by the way. A leader should have put down some roots and weathered some storms. Not a newly planted Christian. And lastly, he says this. Moreover... He must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That means that all of these characteristics should be seen by the outside world. That means that you have a good testimony among your coworkers. It means you have a good testimony among your neighbors. It means you have a good testimony among those people outside of your church, outside of Christianity, among non-believers, what would they say about you? The characteristics must be clearly seen in the leader's life, even by the unbelievers. This is what Paul lists as the qualifications. And you might be sitting here this morning going, well, I didn't really need to hear all that. Yes, you did. Number one, you might be called someday. And number two, if you're going to attend church, you need to make sure that your pastor's living them. Or find another church. But I want you to notice what's not on the list. I want you to notice what's missing. 
Nowhere does it say how gifted somebody is. Nowhere does it say how well-spoken somebody is. Nowhere does it say how educated somebody is. Nowhere does it say how much money somebody has or how much money they give to the church. Oftentimes, that's how leaders are promoted. You know, whoever gives the most money, they tend to get promoted. It doesn't say that. That's not the characteristics. What qualifies a man for spiritual leadership is godly character. And Paul listed 16 characteristics in a man's life that should be taken into account very seriously before he's moved into leadership. Now, if you're like me, you read these characteristics and go, oh boy, man, I'm gonna tell you the best news so far. If you have a call to ministry in your life, God will produce all of these things in you naturally. You don't have to go out and make yourself blameless. You don't have to go out and do these things. You, you don't have to conjure it up on your own. God will produce this. This is all fruit of the Holy Spirit. As you believe on Jesus Christ, as you grow in the Lord, these things are going to be happen. People that, were one, I, I, people that once used to like to fight, when they come to Christ, they're going to stop because it's not what God would have for them. I had no problem punching somebody a while back, a long time ago. It wasn't a problem. If you made me mad, then you got punched or whatever. That was part, that was part of my old life. It was, it, was, it, could, it, it was a little violent at times. Never at home. Well, true. Thank you, honey. I think what we need to take away from this is that Paul lays down these qualifications for men in ministry. Just because a man is a man doesn't qualify him to be a leader of a church. But what qualifies him to be a leader of the church is the godly character that he lives out, that he possesses. And because it's laid out for us, we can observe it. Can you observe these things? And I also want to say, there will be in a man's life, in a minister's life, in a pastor's life, there will be some of these things that he does really well, and there'll be other things where he's working on and he's still growing in. You know, don't ever expect perfection because it, it, won't, it won't exist. It won't exist out there. But the other thing is, these are the things that God's going to produce in us. These are the things that the Lord will, will grow through us if we will simply conform to his word, if we will allow the word to search your heart, and if you'll take the word of God, and this is where it comes from, guys. Don't go by what I say. Don't ever do it because I said it. Do it because you read it in the word and because the Lord convicted you of it. Take the word, allow it to penetrate your heart. I promise you it will change your life. It will. God promises that my word will not, my word will not return void, right? He promises it'll change our life. And while we have to cover scriptures like this, and while we say, you know, you might look at this and go, well, that's very, very uh, information-oriented, not a whole lot of application there in somebody's life. God put them in there for us to know them. If God put them in the Bible, we're going to teach them. You know, we're going to go through. Next week, we're going to look at the qualifications for deacons, which are people serving in the church under the leadership. And, but I also think that's important for us to know, whether you're aspiring to ministry or whether you're just in a church somewhere. 